0: Uh, this is Iron Iron Sports. We're talking to Rod Carew, one of the greatest hitters of all time. He has a new book called Rod Carew, One Tough Out, uh, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs. Rod, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports.
1: I it's great to be on, and thank you so much for giving us this, this opportunity.
0: So, Rod, I read your book over the last uh, day or two, and there was two moments in the book I, I cried. I mean, I'm going to admit I cried. It was when you discuss your daughter, uh, Michelle, and the fight that she put in, I mean, we're talking about, you know, you're one of the greatest baseball players of all time. But the fight that she put up for against leukemia and uh, and everything she went through and everything, how you helped her and then your own fight. But really how Conrad Rulon, who donated his heart to you so you could, you know, because you had heart transplant, just an amazing story. Right. And then you the book was the bookend of those two stories from Michelle to Conrad. Well,
1: you know, she was an inspiration to me because, you know, I sat in the hospital for seven months because that's how long she lived, and I I saw what she went through, and not a day went by she she never cried, never complained, she just accepted, you know, what's what was happening to her and what the doctors were trying to do to keep her alive. So um, I was just amazed at a kid that that age could um, be that way and, and and sustain so much, and so she was my hero, and then for me to go through what I went through with the heart transplant, you know, that's a, another story in itself, it was just uh, something that I don't want other people to um, to go through, and, and this was one of the reasons for the book, uh, trying to get people to open up their eyes and Concentrate on their bodies and their health, and make sure that they're doing the right uh, things to uh, keep their health in check.
0: Right, and you and you talked about in terms of Michelle when she was fighting. She said. Do I have a chance? And the doctor said yes, and she goes, That's all I want, which I thought was so moving. But um, I did not realize the national donor donor program for bone marrow. There was at one point when she was sick, it was only 1.5 million. But now you said in the book there's 20 million people because sometimes your blood type and whatever doesn't match. And, and if you have this match, you could you know save someone's life. And that's really important. If you want to, you know, talk about in terms of the need for to actually go on that donor thing, and I and I and I wasn't, but I'm going to be on it after we do our interview. I definitely want to be on that. And I think that's a—it's just a great thing to do.
1: Well, thanks so much, Harry. It, it is. You know, I, I spent seven months, as I sit at the hospital, and I saw people come in that had no chance to um, be able to pay for their kids being there. And um, I was going down the elevator one day with this little girl, and she's got her pole. She was about six years old, and she was with her parents. They were going to the gift shop. And she looks at me and she says, hello, sir. I says, hi, how are you? And then she starts speaking Spanish. And I started speaking Spanish with her. And her part of it was that God was going to kill her because she didn't have a chance to live because she had this leukemia um, going on. And I said to myself, no, God's going to take care of you no matter what happens. You know and it's just conversations like that with kids that just make you open your eyes and want to help. And Michelle told me she says, "Daddy, she says, I know that you don't talk to, to the press that much, but I'd like you to. I'd like you to <laughs> open yourself up and give these get, talk to the press so that we can draw more people into the bank and there will be more kids that uh, you will save." No matter what happens to me i I want you to promise me that you're going to do that so that's what i've been doing for the last 25 26 years
0: and then back to your heart heart attack in 2015 i mean the one thing you stress in the book is to you know have your checkups make sure you know what your heart because you were playing golf that day you felt great and and then and then you had the the heart attack and then everything that went through it and the transplant and it was just an amazing story that a, a kid that met you one time, but it was one of your biggest fans was in a and ended up being an NFL football player, had a brain aneurysm, passed away when he was 29, which is your baseball number was 29. And that's right. the heart transplant. That's so you have his heart. And then, you know, you found out the family found it was, you know, you put two and two together and actually your kids went to school with, with him and it was like amazing. And now you're so close with that family. What a, what a story. I mean, that is a, a movie.
1: Yeah, it's, um, It's amazing. I I was surprised. Here's this kid that I'd met when he was about 11 years old. And then, I don't know, 18 years later, he turns around to be my savior. And um, the family and my family and and their family became good friends. And, uh, you know, we we just compliment him because he did such a great job in taking care of himself. But when I met him, First thing he said to me is, "You're Rod Carew, aren't you?" <laughs> I sir." He said, "I'm going to be an athlete when I grow up." I says, "Make sure that you study your books and and do your homeworks and and you know do a good job in school." He said, "Oh, I'm a I'm a good student, you know, and I I know I'm going to be an athlete." Well, you know, he grew up, didn't get drafted, but was signed by the Jets. Uh, spent some time there and then left the Jets and went to the Ravens and spent some time down. He was out, uh, not playing, just working out, trying to keep himself in shape in hopes that he could sign with someone else. And then he, you know, he heard a pop in in his neck and called his dad, and his dad said, go to the hospital, go to the emergency room right away and found out that he had an aneurysm. And from there, you know, he battled it, and battled it, and um, then the family lost him. And, uh, you know, it's crazy because I was in the hospital, and um, he was being buried, and people started asking if, if um, Conrad uh, gave me his heart. And we didn't know what was going on at the time, my wife and I. And come to find out, it was the same little boy. That I met when he was eleven years old that um gave me a heart gave me his heart and gave me a kidney. And thank God, you know, um I'm, I'm alive today because what? of Conrad Conrad, yeah.
0: What what a that's an amazing story. And we're talking to Rod Crew. Uh the new book is One Tough Out, it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere to order. Um as everyone knows, Rod has a 3,000 hit club, first ballot hall of famer with 90% of the ballots, seven batting titles. Only uh, Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner have, have more titles. But Rod, you grew up in, in Panama, and I just love the stories. I mean, you, know, you were, had your whole family lived in a room. You were using a broomstick and, uh, for a baseball bat, and you somehow was able to divide b- bottle caps for balls and a broomstick for a baseball bat, and you just fell in love with baseball growing up in Panama.
1: Yeah, you know, I I played soccer uh, when I was a kid. I played soccer, I think I was about five years old, starting. And then I started playing baseball when I was about seven or eight. And my uncle, who ran the um, physical education part of the school, saw me playing baseball and saw me hit, and he says... Okay, no more soccer. you're going to stick to baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's how I ended up on the field. But um, I, I was blessed. You know, I was really blessed with, with the gifts that uh, God gave me to. you know, He gave me this gift, and he told me to go work, work at it and make, make sure that I become better. And that's what I did. I didn't take it for granted that because he gave it to me that I was going to be successful. He wanted me to be successful by putting a lot of hard work into what I was doing.
0: And then we talk about all these high school. I mean, the f- famous story is how Michael Jordan was cut from his high school uh, basketball team. And you, when you moved your family, moved to New York, and you, you know, started everything in New York. And then you tried out for your high school baseball team, uh, and they cut you, <laughs> which is hilarious well, to think that you. Would... Yeah, my
1: my senior year went out for the team because. Um, you know, I, I had to brush up on my my studies and my language because I my first language is Spanish. So I have to learn to speak English the right way. And uh, my godmother, who had brought me to this country, wanted to make sure that I was um, capable of handling myself and, uh, and and things like that. So um, I spend a lot of time reading, belonging to English clubs not playing baseball. And then the year I went out, you know, my coach told me I wasn't good enough. So I started playing Sandlock baseball around New York. I used to play outside Yankee stadium, the old Yankee stadium, but McComb's field and some of the other fields there. So, you know, here in the crowd in the stadium, I said, man, man, maybe one day, you know, I'll, I'll be in there playing. And, um, Sure enough, that's where that's that's what happened.
0: Well, your career started just you know like a rocket ship in terms of going to Minnesota. And uh, being the rookie of the year, the first the first year, and then you're you know this an, an all star. So you were an all star from your rookie year. 18 more years later, which is which is uh, amazing. But um, talk about in terms of I know that uh, your relationship with Cal Griffith, the owner, it, you know, it's come up in the news because a statue was taken down, and, and he's the one who you know, found you and, and pushed you into baseball. But then there was a statement that he made at a at a Lions Club meeting that was upsetting, and you addressed that in the book, um, and that you know that's before you left Minnesota. But then he was the first person you called. When you found out you were in the Hall of Fame, so it was a little complicated there in terms of, of, of Minnesota. But it's some, but you, you know, you end up working with the organization and, and being a legend there in Minnesota.
1: Well, you know, I hastily spoke up, and that that bothered me for a long time because Calvin, when the Yankees went into New York to play, uh, he was with the team, and uh, the scout told him that I was playing these two games at Sandlot not too far from the stadium. So, he came over with the scout to see me play, and I went nine for (laughs) ten. And, and and then after the game, he told the scout, sign him. You know, and then, the, the twins invited me in to work out with, uh, with the ball club. And I was hitting the ball in the seats. I was, you know, I was doing everything that they asked me to do. And um, they yelled to, uh, Sam Miller yelled to Billy Martin, get him out of the cage. <laughs> they don't want the Yankees to see him, you know. But um, yeah, it was a great day. And uh, I ended up signing with them. I think it was the best thing that I did because, you know, they were just moving from Washington to to Minnesota. and They were, they were a young club. And I thought, I'd make the club a lot easier because they were a young club. And I ended up spending uh, 14 years in the organization. And, you know, the comments that Calvin made at this Lions Club meeting, you know, I I was upset, but he treated me like a son. He, He was the one person that I would talk to he was the one person that the players used to send me upstairs when we needed something, because he know that I they know knew that I was Calvin's Bubble, and um, you know he was the first person that I called when I was elected to the Hall of Fame. I called him before I called my mom, <laughs> and you know and I I thanked him for keeping me there and saying, you know he's going to be my second baseman when everybody was saying. Send him to the minor leagues. He needs more time. So, you know, we, we became good friends, you know, and um, I could talk to him anytime. And uh, he called me up and asked me questions about, you know, the club and what's going on in, in the locker room and stuff. And I'd tell him, well, we need this, we need that, we, you know, we need everything. And we would always get it. So the guys are happy with me that I was doing that. Right. Because they were receiving some of the things that they really wanted. uh, New shoes, new uniforms. The whole works.
0: And then when you went to Minnesota, a surprising person was the one. I mean, there was, and today you uh, you wrote in the book that you probably people would say, "Oh, you're going to have to hit home runs and you know forget about getting average and everything." And Billy Martin, who was the <laughs> manager of Minnesota at the time, said, "Don't worry about home runs. We have Tony Oliva. We have Harmon Killebrew. Just get on base. Get your hits. Just hit." And that's and from then on for the next 18, 19 years, that's what you did was hit.
1: Yeah, you know he. And and he was right. You know, Billy took me under his his wing, and he saw the gift that I had, especially running. You know, he knew I could beat out bunts, and he knew if I kept the ball on the line or on the ground that I would beat out bases. So I changed my whole way of hitting uh, from high school uh, to being a leadoff hitter, getting on base, stealing the base, letting the other guys drive me in, and... Uh, That was my job. You know, I I didn't have to hit home runs. My job was to um, help the club in in my small way with my legs and, and my bat. And that's what I tried to do the whole 14 years I was there.
0: And then from like 72-75, you're leading the league in hitting. And then at 76 was that crazy season where uh, George Brett, Hal McRae, and you came down to like the final game of the season. I, I remember I had to listen to my radio to see and you know who was going to win the batting title. But then 77, and I mean, I'm in my former years. I was like 10, 11 years old at this time for that season. I mean, everyone heard about Ted Williams for hitting 400. And that was the year you made probably the best run anyone's ever had to, to hit 400.
1: Well, you know, the sixth season um george won the 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 batting title legit, legitimately uh Hal McCrae thought that our left fielder let the ball drop in <laughs> to get to give george a base hit and and uh put him ahead of us and you know before the game, Gene Mock said to me, he used to call me pro he says pro if you go seven for twelve today." And our pitchers hold these guys, you're going to win the batting title. Well, I went 7 for 12. Pitchers didn't hold. And uh, the three of us ended up 1 2 3. Um, and I, I knew that uh, our left fielder didn't do that. Um, but it created a lot of, you know, havoc and uh, mistrust on the field between Kansas City and Minnesota. And then 7 7. You know, it's just like it was just a fascinating year. It's just like everything that I hit found a hole up the hole. The ball will come up to home plate, and it looked like it stopped and it said, Hit me, hit me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy, you know. Um, and I did not go out to, to chase uh, Ted's 400 mark. You know, my job, like I said earlier, was to get on base. So my job is to get as many base hits as I could each game. And that's what I was able to, to accomplish. And, uh, I just kept hitting and hitting and hit, hitting, hitting and, uh, buying it up in 388 that year. And it was a great time for me and also for the Minnesota Twins.
0: What's amazing, when in your book you gave the stats, you were 50 points ahead. Your teammate was in second place in the American League, 50 points ahead of him. And then in the National League, Dave Parker, I'm a Pirates fan, so I knew that. But he won the National League title, and you were 50 points ahead of Dave Parker. Well, you won the MVP. And I guess the, I guess the funny thing is you only earned for the year $170,000 uh, for the entire year, which – um, certainly where shows where salaries were back then. Uh, and then you, then you left Minnesota, though, and you were deciding in the book, you're saying, what, well, could I go to San Francisco? Could I go to the Yankees? And you chose the Angels, and that's where you finished the rest of your career, is to, is to make the decision to go to California.
1: Well, you know, I, I was a 10-year player with uh, Minnesota, and, and Calvin, you know, we used to talk and stuff. He'd call me in, and we'd sit and talk. And one day he said, you know, Rod, just call me Rodney. Rodney, I can't pay you what Pete Rose and some of these other players are making. You're you're underpaid here. And I'd like you to catch some of these guys in the salary department. And we had a deal. He asked me if, if he made a trade for me, where would I like to go? So I I picked uh, San Francisco and I picked New York and the Angels. And um, so I visited San Francisco, and the guys there said, "Hey, there's no summer here, man." So <laughs> I know I'm gonna know. be playing this. Yeah, the same kind of weather like you were in Minnesota. And then I, you know, I, I didn't want to go to New York because Mr. Steinbrenner was tough, and I didn't need a headache. So I decided that um, I'd come to uh, to the Angels because Lamon Bostek was here, and so was Danny Ford, and and we had both, the three of us had played together and they told me what a great guy Gene Autry was and, you know, how he loved his players. And so I decided to um, to do that and I ended up spending the last seven years of my career, you know, as part of the Angels uh, organization.
0: We're talking to Rod Crew, One Tough Out on Ira Unsports, uh, the Troldies 95.9 Nine, and 106.9 West Palm Beach. Um, I thought, you know, something that's happening today, we're talking about the players coming back after being out from the, the COVID nineteen and their comeback and, and it's similar to because they did have part of a spring training, but in eighty one you were there. They had the strike from June twelfth to August tenth, so they missed two months in the middle of the year. So maybe give some insight to the listeners: what was it like to have started the year? You played about a month or two a month, a month and a half, and then stop for two months, and then come back and and what was it like just coming back and fin- you know beginning August tenth, which is you know about a couple weeks later than what, where they're going to start right now.
1: Yeah, and you know, you you as a as, as a person as a pro, you have to maintain yourself in shape. You have to hit. As much as you can, you have to run. Uh, you have to do exercises because, you know, we knew that it wasn't going to be all year, that we would be back sometime. and But it was a situation where it had nothing to do with health like it, it, it has to do today with this pandemic. Um, you know, some of the guys have come down with it, and now you're asking them to, you know, come back and play baseball you know, it's. I would rather them not start the season, and wait until twenty twenty, and make sure that this pandemic is all gone, and we can get back to baseball and uh, and enjoy life like as we were before.
0: Yeah, so I, I've been telling people. I think the first uh, sporting event I'll see is probably spring training next year. And I was thinking that would be, you know, when this they probably should have a vaccine by then. It Would be great to just. Uh, I agree with you. This whole back and forth was. Was way too much, but you almost had a chance to go. Um, you know, you played on a great team, the Angels team. I remember that the Don Baylor, Fred Lynn, Reggie Jackson. Um, one well, I think it was the only team that had four MVPs on the team. And but that was like your best chance, I guess, to go to the World Series. You were very close that year.
1: Well, actually, my the the best time for for me to go to the World Series was my rookie year. Mm-hmm. We uh, had we had a uh, one game lead went into Boston, all we had to do was win one game, and we were headed to the World Series, and then we ended up losing both games. And then, again, against Milwaukee, we went into Milwaukee with a 2-0 lead, and ended up blowing three games. So, there it went. You know. So, I was talking to someone the other day, and they mentioned Billy Williams and Ernie Banks and myself You know, accomplishing so much during the season but never played in the World Series. And, yeah, that's something that I missed because I was doing an interview with uh, Tiki Barber, her football player, and I asked him, how was the big one? I was playing, was it playing in the big one? And he said, unbelievable. (laughs) So um, I I, I missed it, yeah.
0: And then, like, two two other uh, events in, in 83, you're 37 years old, and I remember this. I mean, this was sort of like the whole Jack Nicklaus thing. You're 37, and you're hitting 400 again. You know, by middle of July, you're you're hitting 400, and there was another chance for you to hit that 400 mark. It was just so exciting to to have you at you know at, so later in your career, but just on the precipice of of this historic feat.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. You know, I just you know I you know I was blessed. You know, I was really blessed. From the first time I started playing baseball, my mother used to push me. She made sure I had a bat and a glove, and she knew that that's something that I wanted to do and uh, she always used to tell me you know that you know God's gonna take care of you, he's gonna be in your back pocket, he's gonna guide you and so I felt like that was happening to me, that he was always there with me, never let me down, and um I felt like I had to Keep working uh, as long as I was playing. I took extra batting practice five or six days in a week until I retired <laughs> because I always wanted to be sharp.
0: Right, it was great, and I think it was so I, so neat that you hit your three thousands hit. Uh, the Twins were in town. You got to do it at home in, in, in the front of California at Anaheim. And uh, it was like a perfect storybook ending of your career to actually have the 3,000 hit at home against the Minnesota Twins, the two teams that you played on.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the team that I wanted to get it against because, you know, uh, harmony Killebrew was there that year, and we were teammates for a while. The game was uh, televised back in the Twin Cities, and I wanted the fans back there to to see it, you know, because I had given 14 years of my career to, to the fans in Minnesota, and I, I wanted them to, to say, Yeah, we remember this hit, or we remember that hit, but now we do remember seeing base hit number 3000.
0: <laughs> and then you were ner- you were so nervous in the book. You talked about how uh, in the book about you were nervous about the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, you know, for my someone like me, I'm like, you're no doubt first ballot Hall of Famer. But you were nervous about it because you so you didn't have the relationship with the writers. Um, you were concerned about those things. But and then you were shocked when you got I think it was 90 of the of the ballots on the first ballot. You had 41 out of 41 out of 443. So to get the Hall of Fame and on the first ballot.
1: Well, yes, I was because I remember. You know, the tough guys that I had problems with were the Latin writers because they expected me to be at their whim. <laughs> you know, whenever they wanted me, wanted to talk to me, I had to talk to them. And I, I had four four Latin writers that says, we will not vote for you uh, to get into the Hall of Fame. And I said, that's okay, this is no problem. So that's one of the reasons and I don't didn't know how other writers felt. you know it was out of my hands it was in their hands so um i I was fortunate enough to garner enough ballots to um to get in my first year and during the um the process while I was in Cooperstown, Bobby Door came up to me and he says, "Rod." welcome to the greatest fraternity in the world. <laughs> and over the years, I've seen words where Bobby's words were, were true because we have a great time uh, for that weekend that we're there. And we um, spent, we're, were close. We competed against each other. But then at the dinner at night, we just ripped guys, you know? The, the line drive hitters had their own table. 300 pitchers, win, uh, winning pitchers, had their own table. Uh, the home run hitters have their own table, but our table always seemed to be having a good time. So all of a sudden, we started drawing Orlando Sopeda and uh, uh, Lou Brock and uh, Tony Perez. They all want to come over and sit at our table because we were always having a good time. You know, ragging on guys about they couldn't get us out what we used to do against them and things like that.
0: Those would be awesome dinners to see. Um, and you and you talked in the book about how Ted Williams, you had this conversation with Ted Williams, I mean, two of the greatest hitters of all time, comparing notes, and and we had Jared Diamond who wrote this book called Swing Kings about how Ted was probably what we're looking at today with the uppercut swing and, and the different swings, and, and I guess you two spent you know, an hour or two going back and forth about your style and his style, and of course both are phenomenal styles, but the point is you got that, that that would have been a great discussion. You guys should have like put that on pay-per-view, when you were talking to Ted Williams about hitting?
1: <laughs> well, you know, Ted came in. We were taking pictures. Uh, we were in Milwaukee. And I think Sports Illustrated was doing a story on us. And so we spent, I don't know, a couple hours taking pictures and talking, hitting. And um, he was telling me, he says, you ought to buy my book. And, and I said, Ted, <laughs> I'm not going to buy your book because I know exactly what, your book is going to say. And, you know, he had that pattern on the front of the book showing what pitches uh, he wouldn't try to hit because he couldn't handle them. And those are pitches that I could handle that I made a living off of. And uh, we just went back and forth, razzing each other. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that was, and you know, it's like today's hitters. I mean, that's the one thing is what you, and you, you discuss in the book, it's, it's all, it's home run, strikeout, home run, strikeout. And that's all it is. And people are just, and you were like, yes. you don't, you know, that's the essence of the game today. And it must bother you when you look and see a shift and say, look at oh, the whole third base and the short stuff, there's nobody standing there and they don't even try to hit over the other side.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't think they would have played that type of shift on me <laughs> because I, you know, I was a good bunner, but, um, Hitters today don't make adjustments. You know, it's either they can't or maybe they won't. But um, I, I don't like the way the game is played today, and I don't like to shift. I think if you're going to shift, you move the guys over the left-handed hitters, maybe five feet behind uh, the cut of the grass, not halfway out into right field. You know, so um, it's it's not it's no fun.
0: <laughs> well, we had John Shea on, and he worked, wrote a book with Willie Mays uh, called 24, which is out, too, at the same time as your book is out. And I thought it was neat because Willie Mays said his he thought his key to hitting was, I can see the pitch coming out of the hands. It's, I mean, it's impossible for me to think. that I mean, I can't even see anything, let alone seeing a pitch. And you wrote that in your book, that you felt the keys to your success was actually seeing the, the ball come from the pitcher's hand. Uh, just amazing that both of you mentioned that was your keys to your success.
1: Well, you know, we both had great eyesight and we both had good eye hand coordination. And that's the way I I really used to hit. I didn't guess. Um I went up there with the idea of seeing where the ball is coming from, what the ball is doing and reaction because and reacting to it because that's what they that's what hitting is all about. Is, it's about reacting to the pitch um if it's moving which way is it going? And you have to, you know, right away see it and, 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 and go after it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was uh, the one point you said you didn't really use video a lot because you see pictures with the analytics and the videos and everything break down. But you said the only time you looked at it was if you, it, you said if you saw that you were, uh, you were showing your muscle, your bicep on your, on your one hand, on your arm, because you said you felt you were gripping the bat too much. That's what, that's what the video, if you saw that, that was a, that was a concern.
1: Yeah, you know, um, and the only time I really used it, the video, too, was my first year when uh, Tony Oliva and I were roommates. We bought this bell and Howell camera, (laughs) and so we used to try and film each other during the game, and then we'd go back to the hotel, take a sheet off the bed, hang it up, and watch ourselves hit. And um, after they started, the club started bringing all the equipment in, I think what happened... There's a lot of guys going, and they over over analyze, you know, their stands and stuff. I look for one thing, and when I saw my arm, you know, the muscles showing in my arm, I knew that I was squeezing the bat too hard, and you know, from the start. And I always wanted to be in a very relaxed uh, moment when when I was at the plate.
0: We've been talking to Rod Carew, uh, one tough out, uh, fighting off life's curveballs. Even though you said the curveball, you felt comfortable with the curveball. It was the You said your worst pitch was down the middle, I think, the fastball down the middle when you were telling Dolan <laughs> Yeah,
1: I remember uh, uh, playing against Texas, and um, the manager would tell Sundberg, let him know what's coming, tell him what's coming. He says, so Sunberg says, you can't do that. I says, tell him what's coming. He says, because no no matter what we throw up there, he's going to hit. So let's see if we can surprise him by throwing the ball down the middle. And <laughs> sure enough, they did for the, the first at-bat. And then the second time I went up, I says, Jimmy, and she says, are you guys, is he serious? Is Connor Ryan serious about that? He says, yeah. He says, I'm going to tell you. Fastball down the middle, fastball outside, and then I started getting base hits, and Tony Ryan was in the in the dugout. And he was just frustrated, <laughs> you know.
0: So, well, Rod, thank you so much. I know you have a busy schedule. And you're promoting your book, uh, Rod Crew One Tough Out. Again, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, all the bookstores. It's a it's a great book. It's a neat, it's a good read. I mean, it was. I think you said it talks about your your daughter's struggles. It talks about your struggles in terms of overcoming your heartache. It talks about your career. Just a great book to to read. And uh, I mean, I enjoyed it tremendously. So I hope I hope people are, go out and buy the book.
1: Thanks so much, Al. I appreciate it, and I. I really appreciate you having me on talking about the book and you know, giving it some notoriety.
0: <laughs> wow, it definitely has it. So well thanks again. Rod. I appreciate you coming on Iron Sports.